www.thepeacekeepers.org. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And with us today is a special guest, Melissa Christine Goodrum. Her, she's a poet, and her poetry can be found in journals and anthologies, including uh, Urgent Bards, The Torch, Transmission, uh, Barrier Women, etc. Um, she's published a chapbook, A Harpy Flies Down by Other Rooms Press, and two collections, Definitions Uprising by NYQ Press Books, and Something Sweet and Filled with Blood, uh, that was published in April 2019. Liter- literary experiences include um, co-author of the Broadway Review, designer, publisher, editor of Cave Canem's Writing Down the Music and Letters to the Future. She's co-president of the Cambridge Academy of uh, Cambridge uh, Poetry Awards, recipient of Zora Neil Hurston Award from the Jack Howard School of Disembodied Poets at Norbury University. And she teaches high school in Brooklyn and is a faculty advisor for a student literary magazine. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So um, why don't we start the conversation about your poetry Tell us a little bit about your poetry practice and uh, and what what are the, some of the obsessions or what are some of the themes you recur to, that recurring themes in your work? Okay. Um, well, um, I started writing when I was really little. Um, I probably put together my first book when I was about six years old and handed it off to mom on Mother's Day and said, uh, here you go. Great. Um, and I've been um, writing and, and uh, exploring uh, readings and um Lots of other writers uh, ever since. Um, I've always been in love with the sound of words, um, the music that they can make, um, and uh, interested in music in general. Um, there's something about the way that different languages um, come together and have their own music that interests me. And so you'll find in my latest book that there are um, many inspirations from Spanish to Italian to German to French. Um, not just the artists, the visual artists that I'm finding inspiration from in their, in terms of their works, but also the language, um, of the titles and the way that language moves. Um, so I think that a lot of my work stems from that, stems from, um, this, um, obsession with, um, the power of language. Um, and I've always found it to be, um, sort of my softest spot. Interesting, interesting. And um, so now, uh, what, what do you think? Um, what like we we're talking about? We we're talking about like truths and such, and uh, how we can express those truths in language. Uh, thinking about how those essential truths can be kind of communicated in a way that um, makes an impact, you know. And how how do you think you do that? How how is your practice? And kind of like you're talking about languages about like how, what are the connection with the experience and how do you feel? And to what extent do you feel that poetry is a specific tool to access experiences that perhaps you couldn't do in other forms, maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. so I think that, please excuse my cold, but um, I think that through poetry, um, there's an opportunity to say things in a very concise manner that is attractive because of the music of the sound of the language. Mm. Um, I also think that there's an opportunity for depth of thought of um, of voicing many thoughts of many people through the experiences of one. Um, and I think I also teach that in the classroom so that my students have an opportunity to explore how the voice of one can affect many. 
Um, and I think that they can see that historically. Um, I, th- I think that they see that, um, you know, every day when they look online and they're looking at these memes and they're looking at Instagram and how fast these ideas spread. I think they see the power of language. Um, and I think that they start to find it because I'm so excited about it. So I try to um, infuse my poetry with that same passion, um, with a, an awareness of the world and how things are changing, um, with an awareness of how rapidly um, they're changing, and um, try to also infuse um, what I find shocks me in the world within my poetry. Mm, thank you. It's interesting when you talk about, you know, the few and the many, um, because like, you know, a lot of times we think about, you know, a lot of times some, some philosophies, some people think about the, the many think about like, Oh, what's good for the, the people and all that. Mm-hmm. But then ultimately it comes down to the one or two people that we're interacting with having that, you know, the each individual, you know, masses are made up of individuals and, you know, ultimately those individual people have to be counted for, Yes. When we think about the math and we're all human beings and we're all kind of experiencing and uh, we're testifying to our experience in, um, in, in our lives. So, um, but now one of the questions in the interview questions was about uh, how does the specific truth uh, act as your empowerment? So how would you say one specific truth that you choose uh, to live or, or um, embody and how does that act a way for you to feel Confidence, power in your life, all this kind of stuff. Well, as a child, I realized that um, all the rules that my parents had given me, um, just one day I just noticed that they're just kind of there, Mm. that they're just words, and that we have a choice in what we do. And that empowered me to believe in the individual Mm. um, and to believe in how we act is up to us, how, what we do, how we interact with others. And I think that, you know, it kind of stems from this idea that, um, you know, people have energy kind of that they pass to and from one another, positive and negative energy. And I think that, um, you know, to give someone positive energy um, and to make that choice is one of the most powerful things that we can do. Um, and so when we're taking, when people take away from other people, when they start um, acting negatively toward them, it becomes a problem and affects large groups of people. So one of the things that um, I think about most frequently in my life is um, the election of Bush Jr. the second time. The first time I didn't believe it, but the second time it was an it was absolutely devastating for me. Mm. And at that point in time, I was working as um, administrative director of Bowery Arts and Sciences, the only poetry nonprofit um, at that time. And um, I just didn't feel like I was having as big an effect on the world as I possibly could have. And so instead of, instead of staying with that, instead of um, staying with a small niche of people, I wanted to have more of an effect And so I decided to become a teacher because I knew that I would meet thousands and thousands and thousands of young minds who might think about the world in a different way if I could show them they had that opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. That's very interesting that uh, traditionally when we think about making a 
impact on the world. We're thinking about like media or thinking about like going out and doing something famous or going out there. But I think it's very, it's very interesting and very moving and powerful that you're saying to go do a teaching job or do become a teacher. And I think that should be respected and, and admired because I think a lot of people have that misguided perception that, you know, um, they have to be famous in order to, uh, you know, have an influence, you know, no. it's very good. Yeah. These are the yeah. voices that still ring in my head. Yeah. Um, Mr. Leith, my high school English teacher, yeah. um, you know, D.D. Conway, my fifth grade English teacher, she saw that I was struggling and she took me aside and talked to me and took care of me. And it made a world of difference. Um, it changed how I live my life. Um, and so I think that that's really important. Poetry has always been there beside me as a support and literature in general, fiction. I've always been able to escape into this world of fiction, but I've also been able to look at the world through the lens of the characters that I'm reading and think about what makes sense in my reality through their lens. Mm. And so I think there's an opportunity here um, because I'm so passionate about those voices and those characters and those worlds um, that people like Tolkien created. Um, it becomes um, my power with mm. my students. Yeah, exactly. In literature and, uh, reading and, and poets all help us to access our own truth and our own power because they're telling their truth, their power, they're testifying. Yes. And they encourage us to do the same. Yes. Yeah. I feel like um, when you step inside the world of a character um, that has been created and crafted with the real world in mind, all of a sudden um, anything becomes possible. And perhaps the things that people told you you couldn't do become possible. Um, perhaps you all of a sudden have this idea that you can do more. And I think that that's what literature provides is this hope, this understanding that there are opportunities beyond what you've been presented with. Um, and I think that that's a beautiful thing. Thank you. Thank you. So now let's go into a few more of like how... Um uh, one specific threshold, a specific philosophy, or one specific work, uh, change your worldview. Ah. So, uh, <laughs> and try to select one or two. Uh, you can select a few. You can go into a few. We just try to go a little bit into how a philosophy or, or work changed your view. Well, um, I'd have to start off with Ed Dorn. Um, his work, The Gunslinger, um, was actually a three part series, something I'd never seen before. Um, and when I researched it further, I found that it was actually originally a graphic novel poem, which I've never seen since and never had heard of previously. Um, and so there's this beauty um, in the way that he opens it, um, this attention to sounds, um, attention to music, attention to voices that, quite honestly, only playwrights tend to use. Um, so there's the eye and there's a horse and there are all these fantastic characters um, which arrive on the scene of this happening or this journey. And so he sets off on kind of the hero's journey um, with a character named I. And um, the I is exploring America and trying to understand how things have changed, and in particular in search of the, el the elusive uh, Howard Hughes, which in itself is a political statement. Um, you know, and so throughout this journey and this poem, um, you hear all of, or you hear many, not all, of the voices of America during his time. 
um, and you hear um, or you get to see great sights of what's kind of glimpses of what's going on in the world. Um, but you also hear his imagination and what he thinks could happen and how he thinks these things could change. And I I was so moved by this interweaving of classes and genders and um, and just so many different um, ideas were, were coming out of it that I knew that um, I knew that my love of theater and my love of literature um, could be best served if I used some of his methods. Um, so his philosophy, um, I think, was kind of just to weave everything together carefully in a humorous way. Um, but I took so much more from it. And I think that that's kind of a point in literature. And another work that has always intrigued me, um, very, very different, Toni Morrison. Um, <clears throat> from the first page um, to the last, there's something so powerful about um, her interweaving of this childish um, idea of Dick and Jane um, running running up the hill. Um, why are they running up the hill? And she starts to weave it into this voice of a slave. And um, I just, I, um, I was amazed um, at how she chose um, this simple childhood um, trope to um, to say something so, so much more powerful. And so I think these are the kinds of works that have inspired me because they offer a new road. They open up um, what was literature before into what can be. And I find that to be um, exciting and new. Um, and also I think the one connection between these two works that I'm talking about is that both play with voices. Both authors consider the voices of many people at once in order to achieve a political purpose. Um, they are definitely speaking about the past, speaking about the present, and um, offering a new future, an image. Thank you, thank you. So uh, why don't we get a chance to listen a little bit to, from your work, and uh, you can introduce a little bit, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about where you're reading from, and then you can, we can talk a little bit more about it after you read, okay? Okay, um, so this is from my latest collection, uh, Something Sweet and Filled with Blood, published by Great Weather for Media Press. Um, and I think this piece is sort of a center um, for, um, for where um, I believe, um, you know, literature can take you. Um, in my case, this piece is called Tour Guide at the Kehinde Wiley Exhibit. Um, and I know that the Brooklyn Museum is actually having another Kehinde Wiley exhibit right now, so I'm looking forward to going this week um, once I get over my cold. Um, but um, I was really inspired um, by just sitting and listening to our tour guide talk about these pieces because I had such a different experience than the one that she was providing. Um, and so you'll hear my political voice um, within this piece. She separates the Western from the Eastern imagery, explaining that the black man is being placed within a Western history of art. Isn't he already? She says, I'm trying my very best, but she isn't. The fierce greenery is taking over. The black men on the walls stare. 
listening to her culturally sensitive diatribe on Wiley's works. The other patrons simply float around her, away from her voice. It's grating on my happy. These viral men wink at me. These vibrant men speak to me. High yellows, deep browns, and cardamom caramels lie down on lavish wallpapers, celebrating the cardinal fleur-de-lis history that was always unhidden, sententiously bare and lickably hungry within this painter's vision. The skin is glowing, luminescent and alive. The jeweled colors, leafy patterns, and floral prints simply adorn his subjects wrapped in royalty. He is fierce, this wily. He is friend, this wily. Former invisible man comes on you, audience. Sperms wiggle among the million-dollar wallpaper. Butt crack becomes beauty. Adidas becomes sensuosity. Surreal, 23 feet by by 80 inches high. You want to lick his ode. I want to kiss his mother. For the first time in all my years, I feel a part of art, history. I feel honored. I am no longer a stranger seeing the art of another people. I am the art. Thank you. Thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think that when we think about kind of the viewer and the art and kind of the meeting of the two and the meeting of minds, if you will, I think mm-hmm. it's very, very important to one of, the, one of the aspects of the poem. And tell us a little bit more about uh, the process in writing this poem and, and any stories behind it. Okay. Um, well, you know, as I said, I was sitting there and I was listening to a tour guide walk through the museum and um, she was attempting to articulate um, Wiley's purpose in painting one particular piece. And I just felt so very different. Um, there was something five years ago um, about the idea of having these incredibly large and stunning paintings, um, which honor the history of art by replacing um, European people in the center with black people and altering the details to honor black history. Um, I felt that that was powerful, a powerful statement on his part. And so I wanted to join in. Um, I wanted to be a part of that conversation. And I feel like you have that opportunity with poetry. Yeah. Um, you have the opportunity to speak about um, what you feel and what is that moment and how <laughs> things are changing. You know, MoMA just built an entire new building in order to honor diversity within the art world. Um, what has been lacking for many, many years. And I remember as a child, my mother and my aunt talking about that walking around museums and saying, where are the black artists? Where are the African-Americans? You know, um, there was a great um, news report uh, by the New York Times, and a, a section done this summer called the 1619 Project. Um, you saw it? Um, where they talk about how slavery um, absolutely changed the economy of this entire nation and is, is the foundation. And so when you walk around as I was as a child knowing that, I mean, my mother just insisted on filling me with this knowledge <laughs> um, and knowing how, um, how important a foundation to this nation um, that economic growth was and how it changed um, who we are as a nation and built this strife, which has clearly returned um, in the past several years in a fiercer way. I think, a more open way, um, if it was hiding previously, somewhat. 
um, you know, I think that that really affects you. And so these, these paintings speak to me um, because they honor that voice. They honor that history. Um, they honor the fact that, that uh, black people and, and the slaves that were brought here um, have, have struggled and are now to be celebrated. And there's that glory and that positive voice there um, that is so hard to find right now when one flips through the news um, and sees yet another black man killed or another law changed, which limits the ability for black people to wear their hair naturally. Or, <laughs> I mean, there's so many things. Um, and so as a black woman, I just feel that it's important for me to pay attention to these things, to honor them. And that's what speaks to me. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's very important to understand that, you know, we're, we're all, um, you know, kind of informed by all these different factors. We're all kind of embodying our, our persona. And then, and then we, we're being like, we want to find connections with other people. Mm-hmm. And also we want to find connections with our identity and our, and what, what we, what we hold sacred, you know? So, you know, what I'm trying to say is that, um, you know, diversity is very strength, you know, and that, that we want to be able to, draw from many different people from many different backgrounds and, and their perspectives. And, yes. and, you know, we don't want to demonize or otherize other you know, people from certain backgrounds or certain yeah. uh, perspectives. And we want to kind of say, well, what's the truth there? What's the truth there? Definitely. You know, yeah. So I, I feel that that's important. And so if, if all of us are what has built this nation yeah. together, yeah. immigrants, <laughs> people wanting, people have wanted to come here for hundreds of years. And the reason they wanted to come is because they were welcome. Yeah. And at this moment in time, that is not the case. And so um, what can we do? How can we speak about it? And this is what I talk to students about every day. Mm. Um, how are we um, trying to think about a stronger future? Part of what built this nation were many immigrants, um, not just those that were stolen and taken here, but yeah. um, those that came of their own free will to build a new life, and they still are coming. Many of my students are immigrants um, and from all over the world. And, um, you know, I'm lucky to work at one of the largest high schools with a really diverse group of um, individuals and minds, powerful minds. And so how can we work together? How can we begin to honor um, what is important in this world and build a better future, a stronger future? Um, stronger international relations, please. That would be a good beginning. Thank you. <laughs> um, so one question I'll have is kind of a flip of the question I put in the um, interview questions is the, the opposite, actually. But I think it informs the both both value both ways. So what is your most valuable success in life? And what is something that you've really done that you feel like, oh, wow, you're not really I remember that and keep it with me. Maybe an impact you had on one particular student or or one particular area in your life that we feel like you really captured what your goal is or what your uh, alignment is or you're really aligned. Well, that's the thing about teaching. It's not my successes. Yeah. It's it's theirs. Yeah. So I'll give you two stories. Yeah. Um, And I think by New York city laws, I have to not say their names. So the other night, Valentine night, I was riding back from um, the theater and um, with my boo and (laughs) I saw this young woman get on the train with hers and she turned, she said, Oh my God. She said, it's you. You were my English teacher. 
And this was over 10 years ago. And she said, you changed my world. She said, I was living on the streets and I was having such a hard time. And you made me see that I could be more than I am. And this meant so much to me. And she kind of smacked her honey in the shoulder. This is her. This is the one I was telling you about. And you never know as a teacher who you're going to affect in such a fashion. But um, apparently, um, you know, she's now studying. She's in her third semester. It took her a while to get herself together and find a place to live and find a stable environment. But she's now in her third semester in college and studying speech and communication because I excited her imagination and her love of language. And it was just so wonderful to see that spark in her eye and to see her believing in herself. That is a big success. Other people talk about, you know, their children, one, two, or three. I have 170 every year. Um, And I feel lucky to be a part of their lives. And um, just about six months ago, I got on the train at Atlantic Terminal, and a young man turned around, and he yelled. He said, Miss, he said, it's you. He said, you'll never believe where I just came back from. And I said, where? And he said, I just did my first professional shoot for National Geographic. I said, what? Fifteen years ago, I gave him a camera and said, all right, so this is what you need to do. And so that moment changed his life in such a dramatic fashion. Now, these things don't always happen, but it touches your heart. It really, really does um, to see them light up and believe in themselves and to want to go out in the world and do something creative. It's very exciting. Thank you. It's really exciting. Uh, That's a a very beautiful understanding. And I think that, you know, when it comes to students, you know, uh, especially when you're dealing with a lot of them, you know, it feels like sometimes you feel overwhelmed. I did, I did a brief stint as a teacher and I felt my experience is very different because I only started (laughs) and I did teaching fellows. I only started a little bit into it, but I think it's beautiful the way you express the, the, the heart of teaching and the heart of, trying to affect people's lives and, and, and having a big impact on their lives. Really I great. did teaching fellows yeah. too. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So I'm a yeah. fellow. Yeah. Great, um, great. I think my cohort was 12. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, they make that first year really hard. Yeah. And I think they do it on purpose because this is the hardest job I've ever had. Yeah. I mean, you have no time mm. for anything and um, never mind the, <laughs> colds that they bring you yeah but um (laughs) you have no time for anything i mean you're grading papers or you're calling parents or you're sitting down and talking with a student one-on-one or um you're trying to explain something to a student who was absent and then there's the beautiful part where you close your classroom door and you're with 34 people and and you're talking and sharing ideas and um letting things go where they go and um trying to guide them towards um new ideas new philosophies and so um, it is a powerful, powerful, powerful um, career. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful option. Um, but I still, you know, equally um, spend time writing um, and thinking about how I can um, express my own voice. Um, I think that's important too. Mm. Um, and I just, you know, somewhere along the line realized that this is what I needed. Yeah, and one thing I guess that the the question that kind of begs begs the question is, what are some of the teachers that influenced you, and what connections did you have with the teachers that that brought you along this path? Was there any particular mentor or teacher that 
uh, brought you to this path? Well, as I, I mentioned earlier, um, D.D. Conway, my fifth grade teacher, um, really changed my life at a moment where, um, you know, my family was really, really struggling. And she saw that and she gave me a little extra support and it made all the difference. She also um, put Walt Whitman on the record player and um, that definitely lit um, an interest in, in this grandfather of American poetry. Um, and I think she also introduced me to Emily Dickinson, who is definitely a passion. Um, you know, Mr. Leith, who just retired most recently, was my high school teacher. I think he taught me in ninth and 12th grade, so a nice wraparound. Um, he was, um, you know, careful, uh, pragmatic, thoughtful, and kind, um, and um, very, very supportive. And these things matter. Um, and there's one more, Mrs. Baines, um, in sixth, sixth grade, yeah, sixth grade, who taught, she's actually social studies, and she taught us all about Egypt and about um, the rituals of um, life and death and weddings. And there was just this beautiful harmony between all of the subject area teachers where everything kind of intermingled between mathematics and science. It was all related to Egypt for one term. And um, I just think that she, Mrs. Baines, um, for me, was this um, mon role model of a black woman who um, was comfortable in her own skin, very excited about what she was doing, and very giving of herself. And I think that um, these are the faces and the voices that have guided me um, into this profession. Thank you, thank you. Um, so what else is coming up here as far as like um, the, I'm trying to think of what other questions. Um, what about, uh, Talking about the truth, talking about um, uh, valuable failures then, I'll go into that then. Was there any particular, uh, on the converse side of the success, or any particular thing that you felt like didn't meet what you wanted, but you learned a lot from it, or you learned a lot, you might term as a failure? Or well, um, when I first moved to Brooklyn to um, study at Brooklyn College in, the M in an MFA program there, um, I think that... Um, I was waffling in a on and off in a seven year relationship with someone who absolutely um I think was wrapped up in himself mm. and I loved him. And I met someone um within a month of being here who I went out with once and realized that I hadn't been receiving care back mm. previously. And it just made me feel so much more alive to know that a relationship stems from two ways. It's not about a missing half finding the other half. It's about two holes intermingling and creating something new, kind of like chemistry. Um, and <clears throat> I don't mean that in the old cliche way. I mean that in the way that, you know, when, um, when positive and negative um, meet and they create a new, a new energy, um, that is love not this um, simple half, I don't know, sort of interaction where <laughs> someone puts up with someone else or um, someone takes greedily, as I was talking about the energy earlier, from someone else um, to get what they need without giving back. There's something um, powerful um, in this ability of um, 
of two people that feel whole and feel feel like they are enough to come together and make something new. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anything when you think about um, relationships and, and love and thinking about, you know, the, the old narratives of kind of like finding the, the, be, the, uh, the better half or the, you know, the other half, your other half. And, yes. kind of and it's interesting how you're, you're flipping that and saying that's has to do with two holes coming together, like combusting, like a synergy and, uh, or yes. like kind of thing, or like a thesis, antithesis, creating synthesis. Yes. Yeah, I so, was just yeah. talking about that with my yeah. students because we're reading um, Haruki Murakami right now. Yeah. Who is one of my absolute favorite authors. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah. And he's, um, you know, somewhat challenging because he's extraordinarily intellectual in terms of philosophies that he presents and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but he's also um, very funny, very charming, and I think very attractive to 15 year olds um, for all sorts of reasons. But, um, one of the things that we were talking about this week is is this you know sort of underlying theme of um, a shadow of the the main character of the book we're reading right now not being quite his own. Mm. It's described as just a little too long or not quite there. Or yeah. and then at another point in the book, um, this alter ego says, "Well, maybe you should stop searching for your shadow and go find your other half." And so we got into this conversation about this old idea of people having been split. Mm. Um, I mean, it's an ancient folk tale, an ancient folk tale where um, people's souls were split in half and they have to spend their lives looking for them. And I just mm. don't want to spread that idea any yeah. further. And so I'd rather talk about it and talk about it as a myth and talk about this idea that um, that we um, choose our paths and we can, um, you know, we can decide who we want to be with and our past doesn't have to determine that. And we can, um, interact with someone of our own free will and of our own choice. And, um, I'd just like to offer them that idea. And I think Murakami is a helpful tool for doing so. Yeah. yeah I think it's really good to think about kind of like the possibilities of where where the world and where our mind can bring us mm-hmm. and uh, not always just saying that, oh, just because someone says something, that that's just the fact of the matter, that that's just, that's the reality. But that may be capturing one aspect of their, of the, the originator's um, experience of reality, but that we can use our imaginations to go into new territory. And as times change and as, as our experiences change, as we go through the river of consciousness, we can then... Uh, find pathways for us to flow into and find pathways for the, the human beings and, and us to experience new things. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that um, quite often, um, you know, at 15 or even 18, I teach both sophomores and seniors. Um, they feel like things are already set up for, for them right now. They feel like the world is pretty scary um, with the college admission scandal that happened last year oh, yeah. um, with um, you know, constant threat recently of um, possible war because of our terrible international relations. The young people are scared. Yeah. And so they need a bit of hope. They need a bit of a positive voice, a role model who will tell them that things can get better, that there are these patterns in history and that we need to remember that we come out of um, the sort of downslides um, and that that's okay. And that, you know, I've lived through them too. 
Um, I think that young people need to hear that voice. Yeah, I think definitely when we, we confront a, a challenge or an issue, we have to view it not as insurmountable. We have to view it as a way that we can uh, we that we can make an impact. We have to take on the view that is is a challenge in the sense that a, a, a challenge we can meet and have that confidence, have that perspective that we can solve it. We can we can go out there and make progress. So that then, if we have the view that oh it's someone else's problem or or the problem that we're trapped in then that view itself will hinder our ability to actually make progress, you know? Definitely. Yeah. So why don't we, why don't we listen to one more of your poems? Um, and you can set up, a, uh, set up a little bit from it and then we can talk a little bit after it. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's see here. Um, I am looking for a poem right now um, that is about an experience in the, mm, actually, since we were talking about um, sort of hitting obstacles and learning how to sur- surmount them, yeah. um, this is called Mutt. You are on a collision course with the mother of everything. The white crown of Upper Egypt is an erect femme phallus with three heads, ageless in lingerie, She be a mummy wrapped in whiteness. She is who belches light in order and drift in decay. See the slinking cat, its furred member curled firm around the neck of a white goose. Her heavy vulture head roars. She be an aural and ever savage eye of raw. She be in royal blue and she be feathered a predator. Buzz, be a roiling lioness and trickster. Seeding humans, people thought her an ocean. In the beginning, everything came out of the ocean. Watch the freak parade as a pair of naked protesters sing, walking over coffee, soil, compacted loosely in sediment and rising in Syria. See this chemical sea over a bald monk. See her heat levels rise. Beat brother guards trying to turn, tackle females tattooed in salt water reds and royalty blues. Feet wet by too little in oil and too little in soil. Caught meddling and overfishing this salted kiss, her Nile Delta, inked in hieroglyphic. She be in headlines. She warns steady of his Red Sea, unregulated, and thunder in me eat. The war's spotted glow in aftercome rainbow. Her toes tingle and spread sweaty and sparkling oils, and you be warmed within her fever. Thank you, thank you. That's beautiful, and um, that is again. Once again, why don't you give the title of the book and and just give you a little bit about it? Sure. So, um, this is from something sweet and filled with blood, um, published by Great Weather for Media Press. Um, this poem that I just read is called "Mutt," um, and it is a um, a quilting of many stories, many stories um, from the conflicts within Syria um, to the conflicts. Um, over oil that have spread throughout the Middle East um, to the protesters who have been speaking up about um, taking other people's land, about fighting over um, anything, Um, the anti-violent protesters to the people who've been protesting over eating meat. Um, I wanted to honor them um, and think about the history of land and um, sort of bring it to life in a powerful um, visual way. 
Um, and so I imagine this um, almost sphinx-like creature coming up and out of the sand and speaking and roaring um, to all of the people, to the soldiers um, on all of the sides who've been fighting, to the oil itself, to the sea, um, which has been polluted and mistreated to everyone. Um, and so once again, I've, you know, in this particular piece, um, in order to create linguistic beauty, it takes the weaving together of all of those voices. Um, and so there's nothing particularly narrative about this poem. It's more about that feeling of power and that feeling of um, taking back something that is important, which is our land. Thank you. So now uh, two of the phrases that I use as a prompt, uh, personal is political and truth of power, of course, truth of power being the title of the show, but mm -hmm. more way into that being the personal is political. Let's talk a little bit about how this connects. So we've been talking a lot about it in, you know, already, mm -hmm. but uh, trying to connect it with the personal is political and how you interpret that and how you feel like it, if it speaks to you and how does that, how so? Okay. Um, well, um, one of the reasons one of the reasons I wanted to come on this show yeah. is because I feel like this is a time for people to acknowledge that the political is not a side category. Mm. Um, the political derives from the polis, the word polis, which means of the people. Um, and you know, the direct translation, if you go and Google Translate right now, is of the community. But the history of the word community is the people. And so if we are not hearing all of the voices, if a particular group is not speaking, um, if people do not feel like they can speak, then there's a problem. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was eating at a diner in Park Slope, and the young man behind the register said, oh, I'm not going to vote because my voice will not be heard. You know what happened last time. You know, the Electoral College won and not the populace. And I said, well, that's a problem, but what are you going to do about it? 25 years old and already given up, saying, I can do nothing. Well, you are at your prime, young man, and you can do so much. And you're not the only one who feels this way. It's kind of like what J-Lo was doing with the Super Bowl halftime show. I didn't watch the Super Bowl, but I read articles about the show, so I watched the show, and I thought, that's brilliant. You know, she's using her power as a well-known artist to say, hey, if you have Latino blood, if you have um, the power to vote, in other words, you're over the age of 18 and you're legal to vote, then do so because we are here and our voices must be heard. And so she is an individual using her personal ideas to bring them to political power. And so, I mean... One voice can make a difference, and you don't have to be J-Lo um, to do it, um, although it would be nice. Um, <laughs> but uh, I really like her. Um, but um, I, think that, I think that we have this opportunity, and we see it every day, and it's so much more alive. Um, I feel so old when I say this than it, when I was younger because of the Internet, because of, you know, all of these variety of media. I just heard about a new one last night. I can't even remember what it's called. But, you know, between um, Facebook, which the youth have completely left behind, and Twitter and Instagram, and then this new one, which I can't remember the name of. Uh, TikTok? Um, 
that's it. That's it. TikTok. Um, So with, with all of these services, you have an opportunity to have a voice, not just be an influencer for the latest nail polish or whatever. um, But you have an opportunity to make people think and um, to hopefully encourage them to action that is positive, Uh that values all of us as a people and as a nation, you know, um, I don't want to say this phrase, but I'm thinking it when um, our current president uses the phrase, I'm going to say it, make America great again. Um, He's using it in a way that I understand, but I just disagree with what he thinks was great. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I think about it too. Let's make America what it can be. Yeah. I guess would be my revision to that statement, which is an inclusive place where people want to come because there are opportunities to grow, to create a family, to, um, to, um, to love a family and to be intellectual, to be artistic, to be scientific, to be whatever you want to be. That's what we need. And when we start getting rid of those opportunities for people to do it, we have a problem. Yeah. I definitely feel like, um, when it comes to the again, the again part, that uh, it's like it's like regressive, or it's kind of like we want to continue to move forward. We're progressive. We want to continue to move forward, and the again kind of throws me off a little bit. So I think the that particular thing seems like we're trying to capture some distant memory of you know. Of, I don't know not, what. I don't even know what. Yeah. yeah exactly, exactly. Exactly. I don't yeah. know what that was, what that image was, but yeah. we need to move forward. Yeah. And we also need to know what empowered us economically and idealistically yeah um and the reason we were so powerful around the world is because people knew they could come here and and create something yeah i saw a meme about um a man who was protesting uh like it was it was about it was from back in the day he was in the vietnam war he was protesting against it and someone asked him or they were talking about how someone asked him do you really think that your action is going to change the government or going to change policy or anything like that mm-hmm. and he said i just want to change i want to make sure that i protect myself against you know like change myself you yes. know basically what he's trying to say so um it's important to remember that you know also we we keep the 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 powers and the voice of the power within our own minds and, yes. and being able to stand up to that and 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 protect ourselves so that then we're not becoming uh degenerate you know we don't become deteriorate our our, our guard our happiness our, our joy isn't deteriorated so that we're able to um protect ourselves against the the, the enemy or the evils uh within uh, more than without yeah know? if you spend yeah. time thinking about all of the evils you'll never go out you'll sit yeah in your room like many of my students get out it's vacation time kids yeah um and just hide but you yeah. need to go out and do things um and have an effect in the world um and it will make you happy yeah. and it will help others if steve jobs only stayed in his room kids yeah um i'm not sure we would have all the things that we do so yeah. Um, go out there and make the world a better place. This is my message. Yeah. Um, and do it in your own way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that we, when we have uh, the opportunity to make a difference, we can also make a difference just in our own. I mean, I think I, I, I do believe that we can, we can make a difference by just, um, you know, staying at home. But that, that's a choice, and we can just prepare ourselves mentally so that when we do go out, we can be more ready. And you know, the whole purpose of meditation is like to. Uh, reflect and have our downtime, have our wind down time. So that definitely, 
balance prepared yeah balance is important i agree with that balance is definitely important yeah um so i think that um you know many people have an influence in this world via the internet um and via um their voice on there and i think that that's a great thing too um i just want us to remember that the world exists right now and we should enjoy it exactly exactly (laughs) thank you so the you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, independent listener-supported radio, uh, Truth to Power show. Uh, Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations of listeners like you. Every dollar helps us continue to stay on air. To support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford, all contributions are tax-deductible folks in the law. Again, it's radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, Radio Free Brooklyn's Drive to Five campaign is underway. In May, RFB turns five years old, and we need to raise 25000 so we can continue to bring you commercial-free, independent media for another five years. Because I think raising money should be fun. Each month, we'll bring guests, bring listeners fun challenges with some great prizes. This month's challenge is a quiz to find out how well you know Bushwick. The top five scorers will win a limited edition five, fifth anniversary t-shirt. Um, please enter Shoot to Power Show as your favorite show when taking the quiz, and I'll get a prize as well. You can take the quiz or make a donation and find out more at radiofrooklyn.org. So that's drive to five. You can also dial 718-673-8201. Leave a message uh, letting us know why you love RFB or why you love Truth to Power Show and wish us a happy birthday. Your message may be played on air. Um, if you're listening to RFB when you're, not in, front, when you're uh, in front of your computer, you can uh, free yourself up by considering downloading our free mobile app for iPhone and Android at their respective Play stores okay so um as we start to wind down uh any closing thoughts or anything you want to bring up or uh and then uh and places where people can follow you or, or readings coming up yeah okay um well i actually just i'm i should be giving a reading at the bowery this spring um i'm still working that out i just read at hudson view gardens the bloom reading series last night um and I'm looking forward to hopefully going to New Orleans this summer um, and doing a little bit of a writer's marathon. Um, so these are some of the things that I'm looking forward to right now. Um, I'm, I'm more in the writing mode right now. Um, so I actually, although I've told my kids to go out, I'm staying in a little bit more so yeah. I can write. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, I think I, I've always gone through these phases um, where I need to stay in a little bit more and work on what I have, um, and the productivity. And then, um, and then sometimes I'm out a lot more, but it's, it's kind of balanced. I mean, thank you so much for having me here. Um, I'm sorry about the cold, but I can't do anything about that. Um, but it's really exciting to be on this show in particular, truth to power, I think, because, um, somewhere along in my life, I realized that, Honesty is kind of the only way, not only to get through those terrible 1970s sitcoms um, where people just kept lying to one another and (laughs) therefore obstacles kept growing, but also in life. Um, It's kind of, I think, a way um, towards maturity and towards growth um, intellectually, emotionally, and overall. And so it's really great um, that there is a show called Truth to Power because I believe in that. Thank you. And uh, I think that definitely, I think discovering what that truth is. And, and when we think about day to day things, we think about facts, and we think about representing things accurately. 
but then also um, we think about what's our personal truth and what what mm. foundational truths can we find or discover that will yes. guide us through these discernment of what is the facts or what are the what are the realities that we're living in. So that that truth that guides us is like the compass that brings us to uh, our destination, which is the power or the the empowerment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, that. <laughs> That uh, reminds me of a poem that I wrote when I was a teenager oh, yeah? um, about my grandmother and her truth. Um, and she once talked to me about it. Um, and so um, it's called Hush. <coughs> Hush. Because she sits in a cycle of companions, hung faces with solid portraits. We small children watch with our hands, hands clamped behind backs, waiting for the mark to hum, for lips to leak the evening to shadow, to hover, to cover our sighs in walking, talking, and drumming stories. In the large honey chair grandma sits. She is the center of the painting, the composer of the strokes, the frame's mahogany origin, and she thickly oils the canvas with her story. <coughs> Your grandpa and I never knew these same ways you do. We knew the white folks in their kitchens and bathrooms and broom closets. And we knew the chorus and the drums hot tapping with the bass. But most of all, we knew how to count our blessings and our pennies and never our shoes. And we knew how to hush. Hush. She sits in a cycle of companions, hung faces with solid portraits. Once they whispered and now they roar, crushing the lies of the storybooks with every spread and spill. The truth lies in their mocha skin sometimes flayed and others scarred, and in the well-traveled strength of their well-traveled harmony, we are singing the cadence of their well-worn feet, and we watch, and we listen, and we hear the drums, and we hush. I just felt it was so powerful that my grandmother was telling me to stop paying attention to my shoes (laughs) and start thinking about all the good things that I have in my life and to remember what was. I was mentioning, speaking of your grandmother, you mentioned your grandfather played in uh, banjo, you said? Yes. um, So her husband, in fact, this is my maternal grandmother, um, Charlie Dixon. He played uh, with Fletcher Henderson's band. Um, He also uh, was married um, to a a very famous woman's, uh, a very, well, he was... He married into Billie Holiday's mother's family. Oh, wow. And so um, Billie Holiday and he actually went out together on um, on two shows. Um, he wrote things for her. He also wrote for Bessie Smith. Um, so he was a composer and a banjo player. Mm. Um, when things changed um, in terms of the history of jazz and the banjo was used less in the big band shows, um, he went more into composing and sort of hid out in Boston, raising his six children. Um, and so that's an interesting story, hiding in Boston. But, um, but uh, yeah, music is definitely something um, that's strong within my family. My sister plays every instrument there is um, and sings beautifully. Um, many of my family members do. I just write poems, though. Thank you. That's no, very powerful, though. <laughs> I like how you, it's funny. But no, it's very good, very powerful practice, and we all kind of are influenced by different arts, and yes. we all embody all the all the arts in our, in our own essential practice. So, yeah. thank you. So I'll, I'll listen. Um, 
We'll listen in a little bit. To, I, I pulled up Fletcher Henderson, 1924-1936 album. And this one's called, I believe, Christopher Columbus. I just picked the first track. Okay. On the thing. So we'll play a little bit of Play It Out. So thank you so much. This is the Truth to Power Show on Radio thank for you. Brooklyn. Um, thank you. Thank you. And every Monday at 8 a.m. we air on Radio for Brooklyn. Again, you can go to RadioForBrooklyn.org or RadioForBrooklyn.org slash Truth to Power to listen to uh, previous episodes. And there's a Listen Live button there. I'm sure most people are listening are aware of that. But if they're listening on the archives, then they can find out more at RadioForBrooklyn.org and go to the Listen Live button or you can download the apps in your respective uh, phones. Thank you. Let me just get this. Uh... Thank you. 